Today we'll uh, look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You know, a lot of times, uh, some of the best habits that we can create for ourselves as students of God's Word is to ask questions when we read God's Word and to seek out those questions with uh, good, solid answers. Uh, sometimes we come across something we don't understand in Scripture and, uh, or something that seems sort of mundane or, or trivial, and we just sort of pass over it. We, we leave questions unanswered, and we don't think about, we don't think that maybe those questions are important, or we just uh, chalk some things up to being one of the deep mysteries of God that we might find out uh, someday in the hereafter. Um, but I've discovered that when I ask all types of questions and then I research the answers to the best of my ability, I discover eternal truths that, that otherwise I would have missed. Um, with regard to the story of the birth of Christ, we know certain things about the story. We've heard the story many times. We know that the reason that Joseph and Mary left Nazareth and went to Bethlehem was because the emperor ordered a census. And uh, we'll read these verses here in just a minute that describe this. But, you know, for, for some unknown reason, th I want you to think about this idea of ordering the census. Uh, the emperor, it seems, if you just look at it on the surface, demanded that everyone in the Roman Empire stop what they're doing, including generating money to pay taxes so everyone could return to their homeland, their ancestral town, for the purpose of doing a headcount. And uh, it started to dawn on me, why would this be so, if that's really the story there? Uh, I mean, why wouldn't you just sort of do a headcount for everybody already is, and why would the, go the government issue such a decree that would interrupt commerce in order to simply do a head count? And we know also that Mary and Joseph made this trek from Nazareth, and they traveled probably around 80, 90 miles, or however it was that they traveled, whatever path they took, down to Bethlehem. That Maybe they walked, maybe they rode on a donkey. Um, but when they arrived there, you know, as the story goes, there was no room in the Holiday Inn. And so uh, they had to make other arrangements. And uh, I heard one sermon one time uh, from uh, an interim pastor at a, at a church where I was a member. And it was Christmas time, and the interim pastor had an entire sermon on why the innkeeper didn't make room for Jesus' family, for Joseph and Mary. And the entire sermon was speculation. And he, I heard the word maybe more times in that sermon than I had ever heard in all my life in, a, in a, any other kind of sermon. And he said maybe there were too many travelers that day. Or maybe the innkeeper just was mean. Or maybe the innkeeper just wouldn't, for whatever reason, make room for Joseph and Mary and the soon-to-arrive Jesus. And I think one of the results of this type of speculative, maybe this and maybe that kind of Bible study, well, the lesson in this case is it always seems to be, well, don't crowd Jesus out of your life. Make room for the, for the Lord Jesus in your life. And I want to certainly affirm that, that that's a great lesson to learn. Um, but too many maybes make me feel like I'm missing something. In football, when a running back doesn't give it his all, and he steps out of bounds instead of trying to gain that extra yard. Sometimes the phrase for that is he left a lot of yards on the field. He didn't, he didn't do all, of his, all that he could. He didn't do his very best. 
I think in Bible study, when we don't try our hardest to answer questions, it's like we've left truth as if it were some type of unconsumed meal on the table, and we don't pursue it. And so as the, you know, the typical story continues, Joseph did the best that he could. He found a cave, found an animal shelter, something like that outside of town, and that's where Jesus was born. And all of these things make a, make a great narrative. The emperor's unusual decree, the lack of the room at a hotel, uh, the cave. But I think the reality of what happened that night is much more powerful. And the lessons that we can learn from it, likewise, are much more powerful. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, here's what we read. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So today I'm going to ask a few questions that we normally skip over. And I want to figure out exactly what, what the deal is that's going on with the census. I mean, why did it require Joseph and Mary to make this unusual trip? Why couldn't their, their head count just simply be in Nazareth where they already lived? And does any of this have any bearing on us today? Well, you know, some people, they, they unbelievers especially, they might look at the story of Jesus' birth and, and they say, you know, it sounds like a really good story. In fact, it sounds sort of too good to be true. It sounds like a myth. Sounds like a fairy tale. It's just too implausible. I mean, they'd say, how many people, how many babies are really born in animal shelters? Really? I mean, and you're t- you Christians are telling me that, that what really happened on that day, he just happened to be the Savior of the world. But I say that Luke's story is not only plausible, but almost certainly had to have occurred in the way that Luke told it. In fact, the minor details that Luke gives us about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth make it obvious that this is more than just a a story that you tell your kids. It's very real. And I want to remind you in Scripture once again that every little given detail matters. So instead of just skipping over these mundane details like the census, uh, let's look a little closer. Now in that day, like in our day, Countries or peoples that were near each other, they had an influence on each other. If one country came up with a good product, you'd find it in another country soon. I'll give you an example. Many years ago, probably about uh, 25 or more years ago, I was in McAllen, Texas, and I had this new dish. It was called fajitas. No one had ever heard this before. And the fajitas that we had, it was the most delicious thing I think I'd ever eaten. And I said, what kind of meat is this? And they said, well, it's skirt steak. It's taken right, right near the hide of the cow. And they said, you can get it for almost nothing because they just throw it away. Well, if, you have, if you've been to any kind of Mexican food restaurant lately, you know that fajitas don't cost almost nothing anymore. Um, what happened? That dish made its way from our neighbors to the south and became a hit here. Same thing happened in in Jesus' day, in in the biblical days. 
And if one country came up with a good product, you'd find it in a nearby country soon. Or if one country came up with a good idea, it would be copied by its neighbors very quickly. And of course, as you know, looking at geography, the land of Egypt is very close to the land of Judea, which is the setting of Luke's story. There, Bethlehem is only a few miles from Jerusalem, and all of that's fairly close to Egypt. And at the time, uh, Judea, like Egypt, all of that area was run by the Roman Empire. And now, I bring up the idea of Egypt because Egypt had a very long history of census-taking. They were the standard bearers when it came to making, taking censuses. And there's a theologian that I respect greatly, uh, J. Duncan Derrick. He's probably the greatest scholar in ancient Eastern and Near East law that I've ever come across. He writes this, There was never a bureaucracy like that in Egypt. And all parts of the empire at the time of Augustus and Tiberius would have been glad to emulate its standards and achievements. So when Quirinius and his assistants took up the mammoth task of making a census of the inhabitants of Judea, they will have had the Egyptian system as their blueprint, for there was no other. Now, I'll tell you all that to say this. The Egyptian census practices were the ones that were copied and used by the Romans. And so when Luke writes about the census being the reason for the travel of Joseph and Mary from Bethlehem to, or from Nazareth to Bethlehem, all of his original readers would have known why they made the journey. And here's the reason they made the journey. Taxes. They did it for taxes. Now, most of the tax collecting system in the Roman system of taxation was done by local authorities who were told if they came up short, they'd have to make up the difference out of their own pockets. This picture that you see is an ancient uh, drawing, or really a, a, a graph, if you will, cut in stone, of a Roman tax collector using an abacus to calculate a man's taxes. And the Romans registered everything. Why? So they could tax everything. Sound familiar? There were property taxes. There were tariffs. They had special pig taxes. They had taxes for every kind of registry that they kept track of. There were crop registries. There were animal registries. There were craftsmen and tradesmen registries. They even had prostitute registries. And the registry offices would have a piece of paper that a resident would sign with his date of birth along with the names and the signatures of witnesses. The registry offices would keep track of all of these papers. They would track marriages. They would track inheritances. They would track the rights to land ownership. They would as well track the ages of all the males. Now, someone might say, well, can't you just try to avoid paying taxes back then it wasn't likely because the romans were fierce tax collectors in fact if you failed to register then you could be fined 25 percent of your property not 25 percent tax fee on top of what you already owe but they would take 25 percent of your property away from you permanently and so people were very inspired to register and the tax collectors themselves were like loan sharks. They could charge you any extra amount they wished and keep it for themselves. They got rich off the backs of the middle class and the poor, especially who paid a higher percentage of their taxes 
than the wealthy and, and those who had connections. The tax collectors had men who would rough you up if you got behind on your taxes. And so the potential for abuse in this system became so great that one of the Roman emperors tried to alleviate the problem by sending out this message to all of his tax collectors. He said, I want the sheep shorn, not flayed. Doesn't that make you feel good? And so when you're reading the Gospels and you come across phrases like sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, maybe you'll understand now why the tax collectors were thrown in with the others because people absolutely hated tax collectors, hated them. So what does all this have to do with Joseph and Mary? Well, all of those taxes that they had to, uh, that people had to pony up, in addition to all of those, every male age 14 to 60 paid a poll tax. You know what a poll tax is? A poll tax is a tax that you pay for the privilege of being alive. If you're alive and you fit the category, you pay the poll tax. Regardless of whether you're wealthy, regardless of what kind of resources you have, regardless of what kind of income you have, regardless of how much land you have, everyone has to pay the exact same poll tax. And so it really hit the poor pretty hard. So it's a levy that's, uh, that's given regardless of income or resources. Now, all newly born boys had to be registered. Why? So they could be tracked and they could pay the poll tax. And the picture that you see here, this next picture is a picture of an actual poll tax receipt that was written on a piece of broken pottery that archaeologists have discovered. And so there was a house-by-house house registration. Every household had to be registered. And it was established in, in, in order to keep tabs on everyone and make sure they paid their taxes. Births in that household were registered. Landlords were required to provide detailed information on the occupants of their dwelling that included the parentage, the age, the profession, the tax status, and the information on every piece of property that they owned. This census took place every 14 years. Why every 14 years? Because every boy 14 and above had to be taxed. And so every 14 years, they would go through this and refresh their records, make sure they have everything on the up and up. But if you were an official Roman citizen who lived in a Greek city, you were exempt from paying poll taxes. So what did a lot of Jews in Greek cities do? They tried to pass themselves off as official Roman citizens. And eventually, so many Jews were trying to pass themselves off as official Roman citizens, uh, finally a declaration was made that all Jews were once for all declared to be non-citizens. In other words, they were second-class citizens. All of them had to pay the poll tax. And there was great consternation at that. The Jews already hated the Romans for being in their homeland, but hated them even more now. But there was a glimmer of hope. If, however, you were a citizen of Jerusalem... You could claim a reduction on the amount of poll tax that you had to pay by 50%. 50% off your poll tax if you were a citizen of Jerusalem, which was also true if you lived in one of the surrounding villages around Jerusalem, like Bethlehem. Bethlehem was only five miles away. 
And so to get the discount, when the census came around, you had to live on the rolls of that district. You had to live there during the time of the census. So now we get to Joseph and Mary. Joseph lived in Nazareth. That was a Greek region, actually. There could have been the possibility that he would have to pay no poll tax if he could pull it off, you know. But on the other hand, if it was proved that he owned land as a Jew to the south in Judea, he might owe the tax. In fact, he might owe a penalty if he was trying to avoid it. And so according to rabbinical law, every Jew owns a fraction of land in Israel simply by inheritance. Even if the land owned is minuscule or if no one knows where the land is located, it doesn't matter. Every Jew, by law, rabbinical law, owns a piece of land in Israel. And since Joseph was of the house of the ancestry of King David, his ancestral city, his home city, if you will, was Bethlehem. And it would be best, it would be wisest for him to claim that preferential rate of 50% of the, off the poll tax than taking the chance of being caught as a landowning Jew and having to pay 100% or even more if he owed a penalty. And so in order to establish his ancestral and citizenship rights in a village close to the metropolis of Jerusalem, he had to go to Bethlehem, and that's exactly what he did when that census came along. But what about Mary? Why did she go? Well, from her perspective, maybe she just wanted to be with her betrothed. But from legal perspective... If her child was born there, then that child, once the child turned 14, would also get 50% off of having to pay his poll taxes as well. And so, Joseph traveled to Bethlehem with Mary at his side for one of the most noble reasons in all the world, to save money on taxes. And Joseph brought along his pregnant fiance for a reason even more noble, to get his son the same discount. Sort of sounds funny when you put it that way. I mean, it doesn't have the same flowery aura as we normally associate with the Christmas story, but I would say that Luke's original readers would have understood. However, Joseph, I believe, in all seriousness, should be commemorated, and his example should be followed. You see, when Joseph received the immediate discount on the poll tax for himself, he was putting himself in a better position to provide financially for his family. Even as a young man, not yet officially married, Joseph was being responsible. He was being a real man. He was being a provider who loved his family, who cared for his family, wanted the best for his family. And when Joseph registered his newly born son, he was providing for him in a manner that would not come to fruition for many years. Joseph was making plans for his family. He was thinking ahead. He was providing prior to the provision ever being met. It wouldn't be met for another 14 years. You see, I believe that our Heavenly Father knew exactly what he was doing when he provided his only begotten son with an earthly family led by Joseph, by someone who'd make the sacrifice and provide for his family like Joseph did. And I think that we should commend Joseph. And we should follow his example. Claim all of your deductions. The government will get by. Now verses 6 and 7. While they were there, 
The days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Once the baby Jesus was born, what did she do? She took some cloths, some bandages really, and wrapped him up. Literally, it says she swaddled him. It's a word we don't use very often. She swaddled him. What does it mean to be swaddled? It means that you're just wrapped like a big tube, like, a, like you're in a big tortilla, and your arms are strapped to your side, and your legs are strapped down, and you're just wrapped up, and you can't bend your arms, you can't bend your legs. You don't have any freedom of movement. You're, you're kept absolutely stiff. That's how she wrapped the baby Jesus. She swaddled him. And she took these bandages and t- tightly wrapped his arms and his legs so as to hold them still. And that was the practice in that culture. In fact, in some cultures today, it's still the practice. Why, do, why would someone do that? Well, part of it is to keep the baby Jesus warm. Because we know that he was born around 5 or 4 B.C. in the winter of 5 or 4 B.C., probably December or January of uh, that, that change of the way we count years. And so it seems ironic to me that the moment that God, who is completely free, God is the most free person, the most free being that has ever existed, that the God who is completely free, when he became flesh and he was birthed, the God who cannot be contained was trapped and contained by a young woman. He was trapped, and we have to remember what Scripture says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, that he humbled himself, and he emptied himself, and he took on humanity, and he submitted himself to all of the things that humanity has to go through, being hungry and, and weeping and being hurt and even death. And Jesus submitted himself to all of this. And we read that there was no room in the inn, verse 7 says. And because there's no room for Jesus in the, or for the family in the inn, Jesus was placed in a, in a manger, a, a feeding trough that cattle and sheep and donkeys and horses use. Now, as you might already know, I may have mentioned this before, the word in there in verse 7, it's really not a very good translation. The word in in the Greek, I don't try to teach a lot of Greek, but I want to show you the difference here. Uh, the word in there is the word kataluma, and it means guest room. That's what literally what kataluma means. It means guest room. The word kataluma was used in only one other New Testament story. Remember at the near the end of Jesus' life, He met with his disciples in secret, and they went up to an upper room to pray. They went up to the Cataluma. That's what a Cataluma is. It's a guest room. And uh, they had the Lord's Supper there. And it it was called the upper room in that passage in Luke chapter 22, verse 11, because that's where the guest room is usually located. And so if, if Luke wanted to talk about the Holiday Inn, or the Best Western, or some type of room that you would rent, he would have used a completely different word. He would have used the word that is used to describe when the Good Samaritan takes the wounded man and takes him to the Holiday Inn, if you will. It takes him to the Pandakion, is the Greek word. He would have used that term. 
That's not where Jesus' family went. They didn't go looking for a hotel. They went to someone's house. And there was no room for them in the guest room. The picture that you see here is uh, typical of what a first century Jewish home looked like. Upstairs on the left would be a, a family room. The guest room, the cataloma, would be upstairs on the right. It's just a little bit smaller. And downstairs on the left is where the animals would stay at night, especially cold on cold nights, especially pregnant animals or sick animals or weak animals or vulnerable animals. And there would be a feeding trough inside. The rules for hospitality in that area would be that a host would welcome any traveling stranger. That's just what you did back then. You would welcome traveling strangers, especially someone who might be related to you via common ancestry. There in the city of David, someone else is coming who's also a descendant of David. You would certainly welcome them. And the rules of hospitality would be that you would certainly put them in the guest room. And so when Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, he would have told whatever resident he came across in the city square that he was there because of the census. And even in the, the uh, I would say, unlikely event that he didn't already know someone, he certainly would have been welcomed at anyone's house or at least been directed to his own distant relatives. They lived down the street and to the left. I mean, after all, he, Joseph, is a descendant of King David. And Bethlehem, where he was, was King David's hometown. And so at some point, we know, because there was no room for Mary in the upper room, that they arrived at someone's house. Mary should have been given a space upstairs, especially if she was family. But she was only allowed to remain downstairs with the animals. There was no room for a pregnant, unmarried woman except downstairs with the animals. Go have your baby down there. That was the reception that they received. You know, the big picture of all this is when the Son of God came into this world, He was given an earthly father who provided for Him. We know that because Joseph went to be registered and save money on the poll tax. And when the Son of God came into the world, he was given a mother who endured the shame of an unwed pregnancy. She was treated inhospitably by people, perhaps even family, who told her to go give birth to her baby down there with where the animals stay. And when the Son of God came into this world, the stigma of being born to an unwed mother stayed with him throughout his entire life. Many years later, 30 years later, Jesus was deridingly called the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. Why? Because everyone knew Joseph's not the daddy. He's the son of Mary. But Jesus didn't let what others thought or said of him stop him from serving his heavenly father. 
you know, the circumstances that Jesus experienced, even as a little baby, were not obviously completely ideal from at least our human vantage point. Born to an unwed mother, rejected by inhospitable people, placed with animals. But Jesus' life was directed by the very hand of God. And as Jesus grew, his parents taught him to love God. He also taught his parents to love God. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, we read the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. You know, your own life, our own lives might seem that they're filled with circumstances that are less than perfect. Things go wrong financially, health-wise, issues come up, family issues, whatever. But if we're willing, God will direct our lives. And we can learn to love God more. We can increase in wisdom. And my prayer is that the grace of God might be found with us all.